Before there were roads around Puget Sound, there were rivers. Before the stagecoaches, there were Salish canoes. And before the planes, the trains, and the automobiles, there was the water and the ships that traveled upon it. In the earliest days of human habitation in what is now Washington State, the fastest way to get from place to place around the Salish Sea was by paddling a canoe, whether to find a quiet spot to fish, hunt down a whale, race for bragging rights, visit and trade with neighboring tribes, or mount a seaborne offense to help secure your way of life. When Spanish, British, and later American explorers first entered what is now known as Puget Sound, they brought with them massive tall ships capable of carrying armies across oceans. Aboard these tall ships were small ships, like gigs and other types of rowboats, which soon became more prevalent upon the water after settlement by the first non-natives in the region. As more and more settlers took root in the area, the need for better boats led to the development of steam vessels, some with propellers, some with paddle wheels, and all designed primarily to move people and goods back and forth across the inland sea. At first, enterprising entrepreneurs obtained a boat and began ferrying folks for a small fee. As their profits grew, they built bigger and faster steamships to carry more people, food and supplies, cattle and machinery. By the 1860s, there were hundreds of steamers crisscrossing the Puget Sound. Every day. All day. There were in fact so many ships upon the water at any given time that an article in the Tacoma Daily Ledger on February 21, 1889 implied that when viewed from a lofty point, the fleet looked like a swarm of mosquitoes skimming over the green waters of the sound. And the nickname stuck. No one knows for certain how many ships were considered part of the mosquito fleet during its boom period between the 1880s and the 1920s, but estimates range from around 700 to as high as 2,500. In the time before roads and extensive rail lines, these vessels were the threads that helped knit together our communities. Each one of those ships has a unique and fascinating story to tell, but most are lost to history. In fact, there are only two that still remain in existence today. I'm Eric Ebel, your fearless field guide to Washington State's history, heritage, and culture. And this is the story of the Mosquito Fleet, right here in Washington, our home. Before we begin, it's your monthly reminder to leave me a five-star review on your podcast app if you like the show. If you really want to help me keep making these, go check out how you can support the show over at patreon.com slash Washington Hour Home. There are six membership tiers you can choose from, and each one comes with some pretty cool gifts for joining. A buck a month gets you a personal shout-out right here on the show and on the Washington Hour Home social media accounts. This month's shout-out goes to Alyssa Aikman, who is a new traveler here on the Washington Hour Home podcast. Thank you, Alyssa, for all of your support. I can't do this show without you. Five bucks a month gets you the shout-out plus a one-of-a-kind Washington Hour Home sticker. Ten bucks a month gets you a shout-out plus a cool print that I designed that says, Life is Better in Washington and features historical postcards from around the state. 
For 15 bucks a month, you'll have a new favorite coffee mug featuring my Washington State flag design made from iconic Washington imagery, plus the shout-out. For 25 bucks a month, you can make all your California friends jealous with your new Wash-ing-ton t-shirt, plus the shout-out. And if you join the ranks of the truly elite, at $50 a month, you can join me, your fearless field guide, for an episode topic of your choosing and participate in a live video Q&A session, plus the shout-out. Head over to patreon.com slash Washington, our home today, to see how you can help. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Numbering in the hundreds to possibly thousands, an A to Z list of just some of the Mosquito Fleet ships from the History Link website include names like the Alita, Black Prince, C.C. Culkins, Dix, Elwood, Flyer, George E. Starr, Hayek, Inland Flyer, Josephine, Katahdin, L.T. Haas, Maud, Nisqually, Otter, Potlatch, Quickstep, Rosalie, State of Washington, Telegraph, Urania, Verona, West Seattle, Xanthus, Yellow Jacket, and Zephyr. But let's begin at the beginning. That is the authentic sound of an actual Mosquito Fleet steamer, and I'm going to blow that whistle each time we transition from one ship to the next. In 1836, the reliance on wind and human energy to power boats lessened when steam-powered transportation reached Puget Sound in the form of a legendary 101-foot-long vessel, the Beaver. It was built in London for the Hudson's Bay Company as a paddle wheeler, then converted to a sailing ship to travel to the United States, then converted back to a paddle wheeler once it reached the North American West Coast. Over the next several decades, the Beaver plied the sound, carrying goods, people, and machinery. The Beaver served trading posts maintained by the Hudson's Bay Company between the Columbia River and Alaska, then belonging to Russia, and played an important role in helping maintain British control over this region. In 1874, the HBC sold the Beaver to the British Columbia Towing and Transportation Company, which used it as a towboat until 1888, when an inebriated crew ran her aground on rocks near Vancouver, Canada. The wreck remained on those rocks until 1892, when the wake of a passing steamer finally knocked it into the water, where it sank. But not before enterprising locals had stripped much of the wreck for souvenirs. If you want to see some of the souvenirs from that very first Mosquito Fleet vessel, the Vancouver Maritime Museum houses a collection of beaver remnants, including the boiler and two drive shafts for the paddle wheels. When the beaver first hit the waters of Puget Sound, it proved that steam-powered vessels were the way to go for the area's new settlers. The only problem was that the British owned the beaver, and Americans wanted steamships of their own. In 1853, Puget Sound residents got their wish with the arrival of the sidewheeler ferry. Traveling from San Francisco on the deck of the bark Sarah Warren, the little boat reached Olympia on October 31st and became the first American-owned steamer on Puget Sound. It was also the first to have a formal sailing schedule, published for the first time in the Colombian newspaper of Olympia. 
The, quote, splendid steamer, as she was advertised, was supposed to make two trips a week between Olympia and Stillicum on Mondays and Wednesdays, and one trip a week from Olympia to Seattle on Fridays. Fares were pretty high, $5 for Olympia Stillicum and $10 for Olympia Seattle. In today's dollars, that would be about $200 from Olympia to Stillicum and almost $400 to get to Seattle. Ferry, however, proved unseaworthy in rough winter weather and was eventually replaced by a sailing schooner. Following her failure on the sound, Ferry ran the much shorter Olympia Fort Stillicum route until 1857, when her boiler exploded. No one was killed, but that was the end of the ferry. The year after the ferry was launched, the British Hudson's Bay Company brought a second steamer to the region and named it the Otter. A sidewheeler, the Otter serviced HBC trading posts between Puget Sound and Alaska until she sank for unknown reasons in 1880. Salvaged and put back into operation as a coal barge by the Canadian Pacific Navigation Company, the Otter finally met its demise in 1895 when the company intentionally beached the ship and burned the hull to recover the scrap metal within. The age of steam had arrived in the Pacific Northwest, and the next major Mosquito Fleet vessel to arrive on the Puget Sound was the Major Tompkins, a 97-foot, iron-hulled, propeller-driven steamship. When it first docked in Port Townsend, residents there saluted the steamer by firing their pistols into the air. It then chugged slowly south to Stillicum, slowly because its top speed was only about five miles per hour. But in Stillicum, residents blew up stumps in celebration. Finally, it landed in Olympia on September 20th, 1854. Not one to waste time with multiple words, residents there soon nicknamed the ship Pumpkins. Yes, Pumpkins. And used it to carry freight, passengers, and best of all, mail, which at that time did not have the most reliable service. But early the following year, a winter squall caused a navigation error that drove the squat steamship into the rocks near Esquimalt, on the south end of Vancouver Island. No one died, but the Major Tompkins, or Pumpkins as she was lovingly known, was a total loss. Around the same time, another steamship was being taken apart in Philadelphia to be transported in pieces to the Puget Sound and reassembled as the SS Traveler. It had an iron hull but was sheathed in wood to ostensibly prevent leaking, and was the first boat to steam up the Duwamish, Nooksack, Snohomish, and White Rivers. But on March 2, 1858, at 11 p.m., off Foul Weather Bluff, at the entrance to Hood Canal, heavy weather forced the captain to steer toward shore to wait out the storm. Unfortunately, the traveler steamed a bit too close to shore, ran aground, and began to break up. Of the crew of eight, only engineer Thomas Warren and two Native American crewmen were able to swim to shore. The other five people aboard died in the accident, and the traveler sank in about 30 feet of water. At low tide, you could still see her smokestack poking out above the waves. Would-be salvagers tried to pull off the smokestack from shore using a team of horses, but only succeeded in pulling the hulk deeper into the water, where it sat undisturbed until 1990 when the wreck was located by divers. The same year the traveler sank, work began on a steamship called the Eliza Anderson, 
which started running passengers, materials, and mail from Olympia to Victoria, British Columbia in January of 1859. Curiously, the ship also included a steam calliope, which played a variety of tunes, including Yankee Doodle and the Star-Spangled Banner, which must have really annoyed the Canadian travelers coming south from Victoria. The 140-foot sidewheeler built from Douglas Fir in Portland, Oregon, was by no means a fast ship, but it is considered to be the first to make a profit in the Mosquito Fleet era. Traveling from Olympia to Seattle cost $12, and to go all the way to Canada cost $20 per person. Again, in today's dollars, that would be $450 and $750, respectively. In contrast, a ticket from San Francisco, California to Portland, Oregon, aboard the steamer Brother Jonathan, ran $5 for a cabin and just $2.50 in steerage. By the way, you can learn about how the Brother Jonathan sent notorious U.S. Army Colonel George Wright to his watery grave by listening to the Indian Wars episode of this podcast. Aside from the ongoing fair wars between the Eliza Anderson and her competitors, the storied steamer is famous for another reason. On September 24, 1860, a 14-year-old black youth named Charles Mitchell hid on board the ship seeking passage to Canada to escape slavery. He and another older black man had been working on the vessel as temporary stewards, and the man helped Mitchell find a hiding place on board. He was ultimately discovered, either at Stillicum or Seattle, and was not taken into custody right away because he promised to work off his passage. Coincidentally, Washington's acting territorial governor, Henry M. McGill, and his family were also on the Eliza Anderson. Mitchell confided to McGill's son that he intended to desert the ship in Victoria, and that little rat told his father, who then told the ship's officers and when they were just four miles out of Victoria, they seized Mitchell and held him in, quote, close confinement. Now, once in Victoria, word got out that Mitchell was being held against his will aboard the Eliza Anderson, and a group of protesters composed of both white and black citizens of Victoria marched down to the dock. A lawyer presented a petition for a writ of habeas corpus to the local chief justice, who granted the writ. Armed with that writ, the local sheriff and police constable boarded the Eliza Anderson, presented the writ to the officer in charge, and demanded that Mitchell be released to them. The officer in charge told them to talk to the captain, who told them to talk to Governor McGill. McGill went ashore and, depending on the source, either gave in to the Canadian court's demand or protested vociferously against it. Either way, Mitchell was removed from the vessel by the Canadian authorities and became a free Canadian man. By the 1870s, faster ships like the J.B. Libby, Mary Woodruff, Pioneer, Alexandra, and Jenny Jones overtook both the Eliza Anderson's pace and profit. It was eventually relocated to Alaska's Dutch Harbor in the Aleutian Islands, where it was later beached and abandoned in 1898. Like the Eliza Anderson, the sidewheel steamer Wilson G. Hunt began its Puget Sound service in 1858 as well. Built in New York in 1849, the vessel was 185 feet long, 25 feet wide, and had a 6.75-foot depth of hold. The Hunt had an old steeple-style steam engine, and its low-pressure boiler could drive the vessel at 15 knots, 
the most unusual feature of the Wilson G. Hunt, was the unusual housing for her steeple engine that resembled an enormous wedge of cheese. You can go see a picture of it on the website at WashingtonHourHome.com. The Hunt was a mail runner for a while before mechanical problems forced it into early retirement. It was used on the Columbia River and the Fraser River for a time, but in 1884 the Wilson G. Hunt was laid up in Victoria's Inner Harbor, where it stayed for another six years, until the decision was made to junk the ship and she was ultimately burned to recover her scrap metal. Domingo Marcucci built the sidewheel steam tug Cyrus Walker at his California shipyard in 1864. She was 120 feet long with a 28-foot beam and an 8-foot hold, and equipped with two high-pressure steam engines. Marcucci sent the Cyrus Walker to Puget Sound to tow logs for the Pope and Talbot Lumber Company, but it found service in the burgeoning Mosquito Fleet as soon as 1866 and was active at least through 1883. The sidewheel steamer George E. Starr was built at Seattle in 1878 for the Puget Sound Steam Navigation Company's International Route to Victoria. It was 148 feet long with a 28-foot beam and a 9-foot depth of hold. The George E. Starr was considered sufficiently elegant at that time to allow President Rutherford B. Hayes to spend a night in one of her cabins while visiting Seattle. By 1904, the ship was making trips from Seattle, bound for Whatcom, Fairhaven, Anacortes, and Blaine, where travelers could make connection with a steamer bound for Point Roberts. The George E. Star served a long time and toward the end of its career had acquired the reputation as a very slow boat. So much so that locals made up a song about her, set to the tune of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Paddle, paddle, George E. Star, how we wonder where you are. Leave Seattle at half past ten, gets to Bellingham God knows when. As you creep across the bight, we can see your masthead light. Out upon the bay so far, paddle, paddle, George E. Star. Maneuvering the old boat was apparently difficult, and when making turns, she would list over to one side and not right herself. As a sidewheeler, this caused the ship to spin around in circles, so to prevent this from happening, her skipper set up a counterbalance on the deck, consisting of an old cart loaded with two or three tons of anchor chain. Whenever she would make a turn, the captain would order the anchor cart to be shifted to one side or the other to compensate for the list. When she was finally past her prime, the George E. Star was abandoned on the shore of Lake Union, where she rotted and slowly sank away from existence. Around 1890, a new boat launched that soon put all others to shame. The Greyhound was an express passenger steamer that was never intended for a dual role, both hauling freight and people. She was purpose-built to carry passengers, and to do it fast. This vessel, commonly known as the Hound, the Pup, or the Dog, was 139.3 feet long, only 18 feet on the beam, and with a 6.3-foot depth of hold. Twin steam engines drove the enormous stern wheel, which made her one of the fastest ships on the Sound at the time. 
The Greyhound raced and beat all the fastest boats on the Tacoma and Seattle route, including the Fleetwood, a 111-foot-long, propeller-driven steamer built in 1880. In 1889, Fleetwood made record time on a trip from Olympia to Seattle to carry a steam fire engine to the aid of that city during its Great Fire. But despite many years of speedy service in the Mosquito Fleet, the Fleetwood was ultimately abandoned in 1898 on the beach in Quartermaster Harbor where she slowly rotted away. The Greyhound was said to be all wheel and whistle and had both a silver Greyhound statue on the roof of her pilot house, very much like a hood ornament on a fancy car, as well as a broom mounted on her masthead, showing that she'd swept the sea of her competition. It was a proud designation she held until April 21st, 1891, when the Greyhound raced a relative newcomer 28 miles from Tacoma to Seattle, the Bailey Gatzert, built just the year before. The morning of the race, both the Gatzert and the Hound were docked in Tacoma when rumors began to spread there would be a race between the two vessels on the route back to Seattle. Hundreds of people crowded on the docks to watch as the confident Greyhound cast off its lines and moved out onto the water, waiting for the Gatzert. When the captains gave the go-ahead to the engine room, both steamers took off from Tacoma at high speed, blowing huge amounts of black smoke from their stacks. By the time they reached the first turning point in the channel at Point Robertson, Bailey Gatzert was well ahead of the Greyhound, and the race seemed to be over. They found out later that the Greyhound didn't have much of a freshwater supply left when they'd started and had to switch to salt water in the boilers, slowing them down significantly. By the time the two ships reached Alki Point in Seattle, Greyhound started to add more fuel into the firebox, closing the gap to only about 500 yards behind the Gatzert. About this time, crowds on the docks in Seattle spotted the two steamers and cheered as the Greyhound continued to gain but it wasn't enough to overtake the Bailey Gatzert, which was the first to pull into the dock. The two raced again on the return trip to Tacoma, and this time the Greyhound beat the Gatzert by one and a half minutes. But that didn't stop the crew of the Gatzert from taking and mounting both the Silver Dog statue and the broom onto their vessel to brag about the achievement. In 1911, the new propeller steamer Nisqually replaced the Greyhound, which was relegated to relief boat service. By 1924, Greyhound had been out of service for so many years that all that remained was her hull. Despite this, she was still in good enough shape to warrant hauling her out in Tacoma in 1924 for repair, caulking, and painting. But it wasn't enough. She very likely met the same fate as so many steamers before her, abandoned and left on a beach to rot. Let's take a break for some trivia. Here on the Washington Our Home podcast, today's trivia questions are all about the Mosquito Fleet and related nautical nostalgia in the Puget Sound. Be sure to listen until the end of the episode to get the answers. You ready? Question one, how did the Mosquito Fleet get its name? This one should be pretty easy. Was it A, a malaria epidemic that swept from ship to ship in the late 1800s? B, the tiny size of the steamers that buzzed around Puget Sound? C, the fact that fares were so steep that passengers felt they were being sucked dry? Or D, there were so many on Puget Sound that they looked like a swarm of mosquitoes? Question two, which ship is generally regarded as the first in the Mosquito Fleet line? 
Was it A, the beaver, B, the otter, C, the coyote, or D, the fairy? Question three, what was the nickname of the Mosquito Fleet steamer Major Tompkins that the locals lovingly gave it? Was it A, dumplings, B, pumpkins, C, thumpkin, or D, ducklings? Question four, the Eliza Anderson is famous for being an unexpected engine on the Underground Railroad, helping to smuggle a young slave boy to freedom in Canada. What eventually became of that vaunted ship? Your answers are A, it's housed in the British Columbia Museum of History, B, its boiler later exploded, killing five people, C, it was beached and abandoned, or D, her owners decided to burn the ship to recover the scrap metal, a common fate among Mosquito Fleet vessels of the time. Question 5. In 1891, the speedy sternwheeler Greyhound raced the new propeller-driven steamer Bailey Gatzert from Tacoma to Seattle. How many miles was that race? Do you remember? Your answers are A, 18, B, 24, C, 28, or D, 36. Be sure to keep track of your answers until the end of this episode to see how well you've been paying attention. Let's get back to the Bailey Gatzert for a moment, considered one of the finest ships of its time. Named after an early businessman and mayor of Seattle, she was built right here in Washington State at a shipyard in Ballard. You know what we haven't done on the show in quite a while? Some fast facts. Fast facts. Fast facts! This is a good opportunity for nautical nerds to get a good sense of the specs of a typical Mosquito Fleet steamer. The Bailey Gatzert was driven by two twin, horizontally-mounted, single-cylinder poppet valve steam engines, each with a 22-inch interior bore diameter and an 84-inch stroke on the piston rod. These engines could drive the steamer at a speed of over 20 miles per hour, According to an official source, the engines generated 1,150 nominal horsepower and 1,300 indicated horsepower. The stern wheel had 17 buckets, or paddles, each of which was 18 feet long. The boiler was a steel locomotive type with a total heating surface of 3,800 square feet. The firebox had a great surface of 49 square feet and could consume up to three cords of wood per hour. Bailey Gatzert was 177.3 feet in length over the hull, with 32.3-foot beam and an 8-foot depth of hold. Her official merchant vessel registry number was 3488. The Bailey Gatzert spent two years ferrying passengers around Puget Sound before she was transferred to the Columbia River. During that time, she raced and lost to the steamer T.J. Potter, whose crew then demanded that Gatzert give up the silver dog she'd won in her race with the Greyhound. Gatzert spent another 26 years on the Columbia before reappearing on Puget Sound for the remainder of her extravagant career. After all, she even had a musical arrangement composed for her in 1905, the Bailey Gatzert March. But time, as with all things, 
eventually caught up to the old steamer, and after changing hands multiple times, it finally met its fate in 1929, when it was stripped for parts. In 1930, the hulk of the steamer was sold to the Lake Union Dry Dock and Machine Works of Seattle, which built a four-story structure on the old hull and used the vessel as a floating shipway and machine shop in Lake Union. In 1996, the Bailey Gatsert was honored by being depicted on a U.S. postage stamp, and her chime whistle and nameplate are preserved in the collections of the Museum of History and Industry at South Lake Union in Seattle. Let's get back to the T.J. Potter, launched in 1888. It was one of the fastest and most luxurious steamboats in the Pacific Northwest. According to Gordon R. Newell in his book Ships of the Inland Sea, the story of Puget Sound steamboats, the T.J. Potter was the final step in the evolution of the sidewheeler. 230 feet long, 33-foot beam, with grace and beauty in every inch of her. The T.J. Potter was intended to be the last word in elegance, then incorporated into steamboat design. Even the paddle wheels were decorated with intricate designs. Where those of the lesser side wheelers were pierced by simple fan designs, hers were jigsawed into an intricate floral pattern that made them works of Victorian art. A divided, curving staircase led up to the Grand Saloon, and her passengers could observe themselves ascending it in the plate-glass mirror, which was the largest in that part of the West. Colored sunlight from the stained-glass windows gleamed on soft carpeting and the mellowed wood and ivory of a grand piano. As the T.J. Potter aged, she matured into an old but comfortable boat. She had staterooms for the elderly, the rich, or the newly married, and a continuous seat ran all the way around the stern. If the weather was good, the crew would set out deck chairs on the open afterdeck, and the glass-enclosed lounge cabins were said to be comfortable even on cold and rainy days. Nevertheless, in 1916, the once opulent T.J. Potter was finally condemned for passenger use, and ultimately abandoned on the northeast side of Young's Bay near Astoria, Oregon, where she was burned and salvaged for her medal shortly afterward. One of the more striking Mosquito Fleet tales is the wreck of the 117-foot propeller-driven steamship Callista on July 28, 1922. Under a thick blanket of fog, Captain Bert Lovejoy disembarked from Langley on Whidbey Island in the late morning, having already made several stops around Puget Sound. Shortly before 11 o'clock a.m., hearing blasts from a ship's horn, but unable to locate them through the dense atmosphere, Captain Lovejoy stopped the ship off West Point, just north of Seattle, stepped out onto the deck, and listened, trying to get his bearings. Out of the fog, a 9,482-ton Japanese steam freighter called Hawaii Maru suddenly appeared off the port bow and rammed the 105-ton Callista at full speed. Remember the scene in Jurassic Park, The Lost World, when the Costa Rican freighter carrying the T-Rex materializes out of nowhere and smashes into the pier at full speed as onlookers flee for their lives? Yeah, I imagine it was probably a lot like that. 
The captain of the Hawaii Maru is actually credited with helping prevent the Callista from immediately sinking to the bottom of Elliott Bay by ordering his ship to continue ahead at one-quarter speed, pinning the Callista to its bow. The extra time gave passengers a chance to either board lifeboats or to be rescued by the freighter or nearby tugs that immediately came to aid in the recovery effort. By the time the Callista's forward flagpole finally slipped beneath the surface 28 minutes later, all 70 passengers and crew members had been rescued. As reported by the Seattle Post-Intelligencer the following day, other than the mayor of Langley fainting, no passenger suffered so much as wet feet in the marine disaster. The Hawaii Maru later served as a Japanese troop transport during World War II and was torpedoed and sunk by the submarine USS Sea Devil in the East China Sea. The Callista, though it was raised and returned to service, was eventually wrecked a few years after the accident. But it's also remembered as being one of two Mosquito Fleet ships that carried Wobblies to what became known as the Everett Massacre in 1916. Wobblies was the nickname for Industrial Workers of the World, a labor movement that came into its own around the First World War. On November 5, 1916, the steamship Verona, followed by the Callista, was transporting members of the IWW from Seattle to Everett to support their cause in that city. However, residents opposed to the Wobblies heard about their impending arrival and crowded the dock to await them. On the arrival of Verona in Everett, a shooting broke out and the Verona did not land her IWW passengers. Instead, she reversed course warning the Callista on the return route to turn around. Both ships then headed back to Seattle. Another dubious distinction is held by the Josephine, a 76-foot sternwheeler launched in 1878 with the boiler and engine salvaged from the 20-year-old steamer Winat, which had sunk in the Skagit River earlier that year. In January 1883, the Josephine made regular runs between Seattle and the upper Skagit River on Tuesdays and Fridays. However, on Tuesday, January 16th, the vessel left half an hour early, leaving about 10 or 15 people standing on the dock having missed the boat. Little did they know that the maddening inconvenience that they suffered very likely saved their lives that day. At about 12.05 that afternoon, just off the coast of Mukilteo, the Josephine's boiler exploded, disintegrating the pilot house and launching people and debris high into the air. Josephine was immediately split in half, and the portion containing the remains of the boiler sunk immediately in about 30 feet of water. The remaining piece of the wooden hull stayed afloat, and wounded women and men rushed frantically around in total confusion. One of the lifeboats had actually stayed intact and carried some of the survivors to safety. Others were rescued by nearby ships that came to assist, and some by Native Americans who saw the explosion from shore and paddled their canoes out to help. Six crew members and two passengers died as a result of that explosion, and a third passenger later died from injuries suffered in the blast. The cause was later determined to be low water levels in the boiler, resulting in charges of gross and criminal negligence against the ship's operators. Though nearly destroyed, the floating hull was towed to a nearby shipyard, where engineers determined it could be repaired and returned to service. Surprisingly, they kept the same name, Josephine, 
leaving at least this fearless field guide to wonder how confident passengers really were in the years following that explosion. There are dozens upon dozens more Mosquito Fleet vessels whose histories have been documented, either on Wikipedia, at historylink.org, or in a number of books, like Mosquito Fleet of South Puget Sound by Gene Cameron Findlay and Robin Patterson, published by Arcadia Publishing, the same company that published my book, Exploring Maritime Washington, a History and Guide, available now at WashingtonOurHome.com. You can learn about the 115-foot Alita, a beautiful sidewheeler that serviced ports between Olympia and Port Townsend from 1870 to 1890 before meeting a fiery end when a Gig Harbor brush fire swept the shoreline and burned her to the waterline. There's the 105-and-a-half-foot Inland Flyer, later known as the Mohawk, that ran passengers around Puget Sound from 1898 to 1916 and was the first steamship on the Sound to use oil fuel— was later dismantled to donate her usable parts to other ships in the Mosquito Fleet. It was crewmen aboard the 112.4-foot steamer Athlon, moored to the Grand Trunk Pacific dock along Seattle's waterfront in 1914, that first noticed smoke rising from the warehouse. After calling in the fire department, the Athlon quickly cast off and watched helplessly as the resulting inferno reduced the dock to ashes in just two hours, killing five people and injuring 29 more. Not to be confused with the Inland Flyer, the exceptionally tall and narrow Flyer was designed to be the fastest propeller-driven vessel in the Pacific Northwest when it was launched in 1891. It promptly flopped over in the water due to a lack of weighted ballast, causing the captain to climb out, embarrassingly, from the nearest window to escape. Later in its career, it collided with both the Bellingham and the Dode under tow, causing damage to all three ships. And there are hundreds of others, with names like Islander, Buckeye, Tolo, and Eagle, which, thanks to the temperance movement, was christened with flowers instead of the traditional bottle of champagne, a mistake superstitious mariners pointed to as the reason the ship burned to the waterline only two years after she was first launched. Ships like Olympia, later known as the Princess Louise, the Fairhaven, the Klatawa, the Kameno, and the North Pacific, which smashed into a rock and sank off Marrowstone Point, nearly the same fate suffered by her running mate, the mainlander, just an hour later in the same spot. The Isabel, the Hayek, the Kitsap, the Reliance, the Utopia, the Atlanta, the Hasalo, the Henry Bailey, and the Suquamish, the first diesel-powered passenger ship built in the United States. The Annie M. Pence, which burned to the waterline in 1895 and was later rebuilt as the T.W. Lake, which later took 700 barrels of lime to the bottom of Rosario Strait and 14 men to their death when it foundered off Lopez Island in December of 1923. There are as many stories as there are ships in the fleet, and as many ships as mosquitoes in a swarm. I wish I could tell all of them here, but some mysteries have to be solved on their own. I encourage you to go out and do your own research. Find one of your favorite ships. Each one has a story, and they're all interesting. It's also important to note that Washington's Mosquito Fleet is not the only grouping of nautical vessels to bear that name. Other Mosquito Fleets included the United States Navy's fleet of small gunboats during the War of 1812, 
a squadron of shallow draft schooners sent to the West Indies to suppress piracy between 1823 and 1825, a United States Navy squadron that fought during the Mexican-American War, a group of gunboats originally of the North Carolina Navy, later transferred to the Confederate States Navy during the American Civil War, a fleet of steamships on the east coast of the United States that served much the same purpose as our Mosquito Fleet, the fast wooden PT boats used by the American Navy during World War II, and the fleet of shrimp boats that each resembled an insect as it plied the waters off the coast of South Carolina and Georgia in the mid-19th century. I recently had the opportunity to tick off one of those bucket list items that we talked about on last month's podcast. Yes, your fearless field guide finally got the chance to be a Mosquito Fleet ship captain. Well, not captain exactly, but thanks to the good folks at Olympia Harbor Days and Exploration Tours, I was invited to be the historical tour guide during the three-hour cruise from Percival Landing on Bud Inlet all the way to Foss Waterway on Commencement Bay in Tacoma, aboard the Virginia Five, the last remaining steam-powered Mosquito Fleet vessel on planet Earth. The Virginia Five is a 125-foot-long, 24-foot-wide, steam-powered vessel made of old-growth, locally-sourced fur with a 75-inch, four-bladed propeller. Now, I'm six feet tall, or 72 inches, which means the prop on V5 stands even taller than me. Each summer from 1922 through 1970, with a few interruptions around World War II, Virginia Five carried campfire girls from Seattle to Camp Seolf on Vashon Island. Thousands of women in the Northwest recall riding on the V, as she was affectionately called, at the beginning of their camping adventure, and some of them were even aboard the ship when I was narrating and came up to me afterward to share their memories with me. It was an amazingly authentic way to connect with the history of the ship aboard which we were then riding. Back in 1910, farmers and business people along the Colvoss Passage in Kitsap County and on the west side of Vashon Island were unhappy with the unreliable boat service they received. So Captain Nels Christensen and John Holm formed the West Pass Transportation Company and purchased a boat called the Virginia Merrill, a 54-foot-long gasoline-powered tug. Her name was shortened to simply Virginia, and the ship was converted for use as a small ferry. Virginia was replaced two years later when they purchased a bigger ship, dubbed the Virginia II, a 77-footer powered by a gas engine. In 1914, the company purchased a 92-foot steamship named Typhoon and renamed her Virginia III. In 1918, they purchased a 98-foot steamship named Tyrus and renamed her Virginia IV. Then, in 1921, the West Pass Transportation Company contracted with Anderson and Company of Maplewood, Washington, in Pierce County, to begin construction of the Virginia Five. The steam engine from Virginia Four was removed and reinstalled on Virginia Five before her launch on March 9th of 1922. On June 11th of that year, Virginia Five made her maiden voyage from Elliott Bay in Seattle to Tacoma, down the West Pass. She continued to make this voyage nearly every day until 1938. It was the advent of the automobile 
that effectively ended the era of the Mosquito Fleet. Roughly 40% of the once vast armada ended up either abandoned, burned, dismantled, exploded, re-engined, relocated, sunk, salvaged, scuttled, or wrecked. By 2021, only two Mosquito Fleet vessels still existed. The Virginia Five, now listed on the National Register of Historic Places, which is owned and maintained by the Virginia Five Foundation and spends her days docked at Historic Ships Wharf on South Lake Union in Seattle. The other surviving Mosquito Fleet vessel is the Carlisle II, a 65-foot diesel-powered passenger-only ferry built in 1917 and owned by Kitsap County that has operated between Bremerton and Port Orchard since 1936. We've learned so much about the origins and operations of the Mosquito Fleet, its catastrophes and calamities, and its service to the people of Puget Sound. But how did those people feel in return about the boats that carried them from place to place? Well, not always highly, as evidenced by this newspaper editorial printed in the Seattle Gazette on August 20th, 1864. Hey, that's my birthday. Not 1864, of course. Quote, it has been generally supposed by everybody that steamboating on this sound was an unprofitable business, and that without mail subsidies and such like emoluments, it was scarcely possible for even a single steamer to make weekly trips and pay expenses. We do know, however, that several steamers, large and small, are constantly plying the sound, and even with their annoying irregularity and competition among them, they manage to keep afloat continue in trade, and the owners of some evince a degree of disrespect for popular favor, very indicative of plenty of business and fat purses. The arrivals and departures of steamers at both ends of the route, as well as wayports, seem especially arranged to discomfort rather than accommodate the public. Steamers come and go like a thief in the night, and no man knows the day or the hour. After spending a whole week of sleepless nights waiting and watching for boats, passengers frequently have to make 2.40 time in their stockings and nightcaps to reach the landings before the steamer shoves out. Though they take a whole week to make a 24-hour voyage, they hurry in and out of a wayport as if the devil or a sheriff was after them, and the people generally are beginning to indulge the hope that one or the other of those persons may speedily catch and keep them. Unquote. 2.40 time, by the way, is an old way of saying a fast pace. It's taken from a, the record speed of a trotting horse, not a racing horse, which is an important distinction, to cover a mile's distance. Don't worry, I had to look it up, too. If I were a sailor on the Alita, the North Pacific, the Greyhound, or any one of the hundreds of individual steamers that were part of the Mosquito Fleet, I would have no doubt spent a night or two on Sunset Beach in what is now University Place, Washington. After countless stops at every tiny, burgeoning community from sunup until sundown, shuttling travelers from one place to another, I'd probably be exhausted, sore, and maybe even a bit crabby. So when I knew the route I was on that day would dock for the night at Sunset Beach, a sense of relief might have settled in that made the last run of the day a bit more endurable. Approaching Sunset Beach from the water wouldn't really be all that different from any other spot in Puget Sound. Sure, once the boat was tied off and the crew dismissed for the night, you could stand on the shore and watch an absolutely breathtaking sunset. If you had the time and the desire, 
The setting sun would slip gently between Fox and McNeil Islands before disappearing behind the Olympic Mountains. But soon, the air would become chilly and uncomfortable, as it often does for those who spend entire days with wind whipping across their skin as the steamers quickly plowed through the waves. It would be time to retire to the comforts of the lavishly decorated four-story lodge built on a hill overlooking Puget Sound. After climbing a steep flight of stairs from the beach to the resort's back doors, entering the warmth of the main hall would have signaled to my brain that a deep, comfortable sleep would soon be taking hold. However, being a 19th century sailor, I probably would have been quickly distracted by the sounds of laughter and gaiety spilling out of the hotel's saloon. Weekend revelers from Seattle, Tacoma, and Olympia must have been imbibing their spirits for several hours by the time I'd strolled into the parlor, and I'd immediately feel underdressed. Piano music and cigar and cigarette smoke would fill my senses as I self-consciously approached the bar for a nightcap. Turning around, sipping my beverage, I'd have been witness to dozens of hotel guests talking, playing cards, and making arrangements for the next day's activities. The hotel's owner, a man named John Baker, had taken a great deal of time and effort to ensure these folks had a good time so as to warrant their return. They could have ridden horses along the beach or around the nearly eight-acre property. They could go swimming, boating, hiking, even clamming if the season was right. And evidently there were other activities being discussed, as more than one of the men in the room discreetly retired upstairs with a lovely lady he had just met on his arm. Finishing my drink, paying my tab, and thanking the bartender, I'd finally head to my ground-floor room. Still exhausted, and now, my head swimming with drink, it would have been all I could do to get my clothes off before collapsing into bed, asleep, before my head hit the down pillow. Waking up early, as a sailor always does, I would have quickly gathered my things and made my way down to the boat. Several of the other crewmen would be stumbling down the steep stairs leading to the shoreline after me, looking like they had had more than a few drinks before calling it quits the night before. As the Mosquito Fleet ships steamed away from Sunset Beach Hotel, I'd look back and marvel again at its impressive exterior above the water as it slowly shrank from sight. And I'd be looking forward to the next time I ended up on a run that docked at Sunset Beach for the night. But that night would never come. After the hotel burned to the ground in 1904, John Baker sold the property, and it was never rebuilt. In fact, the once princely Sunset Beach Hotel would remain a blackened pile of rubble for another 30 years before the property was platted and sold off as residential plots. There are some remnants of the Grand Mosquito Fleet-era hotel at the site to this day, but only a select few people, including your fearless field guide, know how to find them. Time for answers to today's trivia questions, along with one bonus question I'll throw in for bragging rights at the end. 
Question one, how did the mosquito fleet get its name? Your possible answers were A, a malaria epidemic, B, the tiny size of the steamers, C, the fact that fares were so steep that passengers felt they were being sucked dry, or D, there were so many ships that it looked like a swarm of mosquitoes. The answer, of course, is D, they looked like a swarm of mosquitoes flitting from port to port across the water. Question two, which ship is generally regarded as the first in the Mosquito Fleet line? Was it A, the Beaver, B, the Otter, C, the Coyote, or D, the Fairy? Now, to my knowledge, Coyote was never the name of a Mosquito Fleet vessel, even though Beaver, Otter, and Fairy all were. But generally designated as the first would be A, the Beaver, built in 1836, and parts of which can still be seen at the Vancouver Maritime Museum. Question three, what was the nickname of the Mosquito Fleet steamer Major Tompkins? Was it A, Dumplings, B, Pumpkins, C, Thumpkin, or D, Duckling? And yes, the cutesy, clever commuters who used the Major Tompkins every day did in fact refer to her as B, Pumpkins. Question four, the Eliza Anderson is famous for being an unexpected engine on the Underground Railroad. Is the ship A, currently housed in the British Columbia Museum of History, B, did its boiler explode, killing five people? C, was it beached and abandoned? Or D, did her owners decide to burn the ship to recover the scrap metal? The answer, like so many other Mosquito Fleet vessels, is that it was beached, abandoned, and sadly left to rot. Question five, in 1891, the speedy sternwheeler Greyhound raced the new propeller-driven steamer Bailey Gatzert from Tacoma to Seattle. How many miles was that race? A, 18, B, 24, C, 28, or D, 36? I said it earlier in the podcast, but a simple Google Maps search could show you that the nautical distance between Seattle and Tacoma is in fact C, 28 miles. And now today's bonus question. The Virginia Five was obviously the fifth iteration of the Virginia line of ships. What makes her distinct among her predecessors? If you think about it for a second, the answer should be quite clear. All of this is based on the information I gave you while talking about the Virginia Five. What makes her distinct among her predecessors, the Virginias 1 through 4? I'll even give you the standard Jeopardy length of time to come up with your answer. Here we go. Okay, doing my best Alex Trebek, God rest his soul, what made the Virginia Five distinct from her predecessors, and the answer is... She was the only one built for her purpose. The other four Virginias were all other ships purchased and renamed by their owners, whereas V was constructed from locally sourced old-growth fur specifically to become the majestic Mosquito Fleet steamship that she is today. Now let's see how much you wagered. No, I'm kidding. Folks, that does it for the Mosquito Fleet edition of the Washington Hour Home podcast. I sincerely hope you've enjoyed all the research, the storytelling, trivia, fast facts, and amazing history, heritage, and culture that we've uncovered. Go look up the Mosquito Fleet for yourself. Find your favorite ship. Learn as much as you can about it. And see if there are still places you can go today 
to experience that history for yourself. Be sure to subscribe for new episodes, leave a five-star review if you're so inclined, and look for Washington Hour Home on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest. And don't forget to join the team over at patreon.com slash Washington Hour Home for exclusive content with me, your fearless field guide, Eric Ebel, and I'll see you somewhere in Washington.